Uh, first, welcome to the Keto Mythologies podcast. Uh, yes. <laughs> We're a group of ragtag friends who started out uh, in a master's program, reading lots of books together and talking about them. We didn't find the key, so we decided to keep reading on, and uh, we will keep sharing our thoughts with you until we've cracked the code one chapter at a time. And for this week, we read the first half of Aristotle's Poetics, where he sort of takes the practices of tragedy and epic that are going on around him. And he tries to create a taxonomy and think about how and why these things work. Um, so I was particularly interested in, in, in uh, his use of the word. So there's a couple of things that run my mind. His use of the word natural, as is natural, um, in the Joe Sachs translation, at, at least, was interesting. Um, I was also thinking about in what ways is it useful to have this sort of strict taxonomy for genre, which, which this book has influenced all our thinking about genre up to the present. In what ways is it useful or helpful to try to taxonomize uh, genre in this way. So that was sort of the things I was tracking. I was really concerned with um, mimesis. So my translator written that is representation, um, uh, which is, I think, is a, is a pretty interesting move. Um, but I'm also, I'm very wary of any Latin translation of the Greek. So, um, uh, yeah, I have a lot of anxieties about these that word. Mimesis, yes. not, not representation. Um, I was working on the same thing today regarding mimesis. I uh, fortunately happen to have um, Walter Kaufman's Tragedy and Philosophy. And the, the second chapter of the book is on the poetics. And basically the way the chapter goes is he takes Aristotle's definition of tragedy and uh, one by one, he takes all the important words and says, you know, the, this translation of mimesis into English is inadequate. And here's my suggestion for how it could be better. And then he moves on to each subsequent word that uh, he has problems with mimesis. So mimesis specifically the translation that he gives is is Groob's translation, where mimesis is rendered as imitation. And what uh, Kaufman Kaufman's evidence for why imitation is uh, inadequate is because of Aristotle's use of mimesis to discuss music in his politics. That. Uh, he says music is the most mimetic of the arts or that it surpasses all other arts in its mimetic power. So Kaufman's suggestion is that what's missing uh, when you render it as imitation is the, uh, the connotation of make-believe and pretense that uh, he believes is in mimesis. Kaufman also said that since the publication of Eric Auerbach's Mimesis, we could 
just simp we could discuss you know when we're talking about the politics instead of saying imitation or representation we could just say mimesis yeah i think it's one of it's a greek word that doesn't need to be translated i don't i read the group <clears throat> i don't think imitation is a very good uh is a very good translation but at a, yeah, it seems like a word that you could, you could just leave untranslated i think a, a case for for rendering an imitation would be to restore a more archaic meaning to the english word imitation like i've seen people try to do it backwards where you translate the English as, you know, as literally as possible to give you a sense of the idea of the evolution of the Greek word and to see how English has abandoned that. But that, yeah, I think as far as that goes, that's as far as I would use that word imitation. I guess I'm more interested in, so I'm interested in, I mean, I think we're all heavily interested in the relationship between aesthetics and morality, right? And it seems like sometimes in this reading, Aristotle takes himself to be putting those two questions, trying to separate those two questions. Like for instance, um, like 149a, I don't know, line eight or nine, he says, uh, it is not our purpose here to inquire whether or not tragedy is now fully developed in its various parts, or indeed whether it is to be judged in itself or in relation to its audience. That is another question. So I take it there that he's saying like, we're not interested in discussing the grounds for the statements about like superior and inferior types of tragedy that I'm gonna be making. So I just wanna talk about like what the practitioners are doing and what we can kind of synthesize from what they're doing, what kind of rules we can synthesize. But other times it seems like he's making clearly moral statements and putting different works of art into moral hierarchies. So I, I guess I'm interested in that relationship like does he take, do you think that he takes himself to be separating aesthetics from morality or is he kind of, is it unclear what he's doing there? I mean, do we think that's even possible? Right, so along these lines at the very end of the reading, so it's 1454 B 10. Um, and since tragedy is an imitation of people better than we are, one ought to imitate good portrait painters, for they too, while rendering the particular form and making likenesses, paint them as more beautiful. So too the poet, when he imitates people who are quick to anger or lazy, who have other such traits in their characters, ought to make them be decent people who are of those sorts, as Homer made Achilles good and also a model of hardness. So there is something very normative in that statement. And it's, it's, a, it's, Another thing I was thinking about is how his assumptions about what art is supposed to do are very different than ours. Mm -hmm. But hey, you might talk about scoundrels in your in your books, but you should make them a little better than they are in real life. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I I'm not exactly sure I understand the logic behind that statement, but it might just be more like a cultural sensibility. Uh, Adam, do you feel like that's? I mean, is did I pick a passage that feels like it's in conflict with what you just read? um potentially yeah yeah it do, yeah it doesn't seem like he's setting aside the question of if the grounds for the judgment of good and bad tragedy are coming from the audience or whether they're coming from the from the work of art itself right it feels like he's saying it feels to me like he's he's arguing that we are that, that we're grounding our thinking about tragedy in the 
in the tragedies that exist, right? That we're sort of drawing out the, um, the meaning of the genre from, from the examples at hand, you know? Um, well, and isn't that why imitation's kind of a good rendering of mimesis? Because it seems like part of the worry, at least, I mean, he says early, he says really early on, right? That, that poetry comes from our nature, which is that we, we want to, we want to imitate. I'm just going to use the word, but that we also delight in imitation. And it seems like the worry is that in that delight of imitation, uh, if we delight in the wrong kind of imitation, that will sort of, you know, send us on the wrong trajectory or something like that. I mean, I'm not really sure. I, I agree that the the logic is seems really culturally influenced, but I think it's at least worth considering. And and it seems like that adds some good support for rendering an imitation. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. So I was thinking about imitation in contra or mimesis as almost like the opposite of, of noesis. So it's it's like almost anti-thinking, right? Because thinking the the person goes out and reaches the thing authentically, completely, right? Especially for Aristotle, I have no problem getting there. Right? That's what the senses do, it, and and it's precisely not the really modern kind of um, cognitive theory where you render like an inner map that corresponds to an outer map. And like, weirdly enough, it seems like the modern idea of cognition is what Aristotle would call mimesis, where it's like the, the Shakespearean type of like thinking where every soul is a poet of their own lives or something, um, seems to be very much the modern concept of mimesis. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, I think imitation is a really good translation, um, especially because imitation does has the possibility of missing the mark or going awry mm -hmm. but i think what's also interesting is that it seems like aristotle is principally concerned with um as as alex brought up the the poetry of universals which looks unlike imitation in the way that we're used to using that word mm -hmm. because you're not aping something you're now you're, you're now presenting something that hasn't happened especially because he's really insistent that you have to change the old stories, even though you have to work with a certain <coughs> families. Somehow if a poet tried to do history or just represent it accurately, it would, he'd be really in deep water. So it's this, it's, it's more imaginative than simply like narrating facts. Um, but, and it's also strictly not thinking in his sense of thinking where you're actually authentically being what you're portraying. Yeah, it's not it's not literary realism, right? Well, I just but but Greg, doesn't that just suggest then that maybe mimesis and noesis aren't that separable? I, I don't know. I, I would. I mean, like, it, I'm what I thought of when you were bringing that up is the part where he mentions history, and it seems like history is this weird like middle ground where where there's something like I don't know if it's a noetic. Um, happening oh, yeah. history is not no oasis no but it, no but it but it's like it's he says it's trying to it's trying to retell a f like something that actually happened as 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 opposed to um poetry which is not but that look but that to me looks like i'm not saying it's the same thing but it looks like mm -hmm. history it, it's doing something like noasis right it's trying to reach out and apprehend something that's out there um in some knowing fashion, right? 
I think I think history is more about the retelling, though, because if the reason Aristotle thinks that people might be confused between poetry and history is that to a Greek mind, it's not clear both are retellings, and therefore it's not clear which one is um, an act of poetry in, in the sense that he wants, like which one's the mythic act. Um, whereas I think for, for him, Noesis is like actually getting the thing and history can never be that because it's just a retelling of the event. Yeah, that's the main thing, right? Is that you can't comprehend history as a, as a beautiful unified whole in the way you can. Um, right tragedy or poems because you can't go out into it in some cases wasn't it true that uh that history would perhaps employ meter in the same way as poetry so it's it's worth distinguishing the two genre by means of these other uh criteria right if you put history in meter it'd still be history not poetry yes yeah, and I mean, I'm assuming like, you know, the, the speeches in Thucydides obviously employed like far elevated diction, well above the like, common speech. Right, but I think that, that criticism of history of being unable to get into it would also have to be true of poetry, where history is retelling and poetry is somehow telling or like that's, and that's where the mimesis really comes in. You, you, you're, you're, and this is, I think, where like, like it's, Aristotle's response to Plato's concern. Like there's there's no knowing that comes with representing. Um, or like like what the poet puts forward is not the world. Or and I think that's why it has like such philosophic implications to Aristotle, because it's it's completely unlike thinking, where this we're almost like the the poet has 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 rendered up, has made a new reality that um that's no longer noetically achieved, right? Like the, the whole of the understanding of the poem can't be brought about by your senses because a lot of like the, the tricks of poetry or whatever are to confuse your senses or to like only work on parts of them. And then also its subject matter is not true in the noetic sense, right? Like there, there is no object for, for people to reach. Well, so, so, so for Aristotle, right? Mimesis would not be sitting at a cafe in Athens and writing down everything that happened during the day, right? First this person came in, that person came in. Um, it might be an accurate and complete record of that day, but that's not mimesis, that's not poetic mimesis because really what tragedy or epic are, are a selective, a selective imitation of reality. In other words, you have these rules, a tragedy is supposed to evoke pity and fear, right? And so guided by those rules, you, you take from what's around you, you take from the stories, you take from experience, and you create something that's guided by those rules that is selective. It includes some things and doesn't include other things because of the, the rules of genre that he's enunciating. And that's what makes it poetic mimesis is that sort of selectivity and representation or an imitation. Does that, I don't, does that make sense? Right, because yes. it's about what might happen, and therefore, like, there's always a selection towards the universal, which elevates it too. Right, whereas history can't select in the same way, or it, or it can't select a general, almost like history has to just tell you what happened, regardless of whether or not that that makes is a, is a more useful story one way or another. 
Right. Well, like, so tragedy is about selecting the right kind of protagonist that will, that will satisfy the requirement of evoking pity and fear and having him encounter the right sort of bad fortune in the right sort of way. Right. And so the, the sort of rules, the rules of tragedy or the guidelines of tragedy or the, the characteristics of tragedy that you're laying out, that he lays out are really like the good tragic poet selects for this narrow range of things uh, for his art, something like that. Yeah, there's a kind of inevitability to the to the plot, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, that is pleasing to the rational mind, <laughs> um, which is what also what distinguishes it from history. Doesn't he, I think he says uh, something like a, like a comprehensible but unlikely series of events is, is better than a, like an actual but irrational series of events or something like that. So I just want to step back a little bit. So the, the problem with history is that it's, it's too particular, right? And, and poetry somehow gets at the universal in some way. I think we've kind of said that, but maybe not in those exact words. Yeah. Um, I mean, because history in some way for Aristotle has to deploy the use of universals, right, to get at the particular, right? That's got to be the case. You know, like when, when, when Thucydides is describing the Peloponnesian War, he uses universals to explain it. It's just directed towards a particular. Um, and I guess that's the, the flaw of it. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm posing this as like a question to you guys. Am I reading this right? Um, does that sound right to you? Or is it just that it's not that in no way the historian doesn't, doesn't use uh, universals, right? I mean, to think at all, to use language at all involves the use of universals, right? Well, I mean, yes, I think that's true, but he, so at the chapter nine, right? Um, one 1451B, mm-hmm. I'll just read this, the opening section here. It also follows from what has been said that it is not the poet's business to relate actual events, but such things as might or could happen in accordance with probability or necessity. A poet differs from a historian not because one writes verse and the other prose. The work of Herodotus could be put into verse, but it would still remain a history, whether in verse or prose. But because the historian relates what happened, the poet what might happen. That is why poetry is more akin to philosophy and is a better thing than history. Poetry deals with general truths, history with specific events. The latter are, for example, what Alcibiades did or suffered, well, general truths are the kinds of things which a certain type of person would probably or inevitably do or say. So, I mean, I think you're right, Paul, but he, I guess he, he does say that, you know, poetry deals with general truths, history with specific events. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess the distinction is just that it's object of inquiry and not. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by object? Because that's, I, I don't know if I'd agree with that. Like, I think it's a, that distinction is, is really keen. Because um, I, I think saying something like the object of inquiry is like a, a more modern way of looking at it, right? Because the modern distinction between poetry and history is fact fiction. Whereas for him, it's like poetry is is like somehow grasping the whole of things, like all behavior accords to poetry. Whereas history is somehow like that behavior belongs to that man. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I meant. Is like all I was getting at was the the historian aims at what specifically happened um and the and the poet acts or aims at the kind of thing a kind of person would do 
type versus particular or something like that. Type is, versus singular. I mean, it is tricky because he really wants to, in a way, leave. I mean, he wants to make a lot of space for poetic invention and for like the the uh, the need for the artist to make creative choices, right? But he also isn't that invention. Those choices are are really bound within like the form too, right? So he's he's like, it's not just like a celebration of romantic intuitionism or something but it's you know it's also not it's not formalism either because he's he's in a different place i think we're used to what he's saying about the the difference between poetry and history so the poet so sophocles asked something like what is the human's relation to fate or 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 how does a human tend how does a human tend to act when faced with a, a double bind sort of decision and then the historian asks, what did Alcibiades do right before this happened? Is that, mm -hmm. is that kind of how we're understanding that? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, right. Yeah. There's a kind oh, of yeah. internal, I mean, there's a kind of internal necessity to the plot in a tragedy, right? <clears throat> mm -hmm. That is like comprehensible as a whole. And that necess the necessity in history is something that the historian has to apply like retroactively. The event didn't have an didn't have the, you know what I mean, right? Didn't begin with the whole in mind. Right? Well, another way to put it is like in, in history, there's the accidental, right? So yeah. like yeah. being particular means that the accidental occurs in you. Um, whereas in the universal, the poetry can't have any, if it's good poetry, it's gonna avoid accident wherever possible, mm -hmm. right? It's like guided either by necessity or or possibility in a non-accidental sense. Cause he distinguishes between possibility and accidents too, right? So that's like another thing to be aware is like the play could go that way and the poet can choose it or could go another way. Like it might, not, it doesn't have to be like every step is fully necessary but it does have to be that no step is like incidental mm -hmm. to the, you know, the fact that Alcibiades, you know, got kicked out cause the the urns got their genitals chopped off the night before or something like, right? That, that, that doesn't, I mean, I forgot that's why. That's right. So, so what Adam is saying about the creative license, basically Aristotle saying, yes, you have creative license, but if, but you have these guidelines, what Sachs translates as necessary or likely or yeah. necessary or possible, you have these guidelines and if you violate those guidelines in your myth making and your storytelling then you've told a, a bad story or an inadequate story something like that in a way it does feel really foreign but also i mean there's definitely it's definitely still true that like people want some kind of like a logical necessitation to their to the plots right but that's just something that like the human mind demands from these kind of entertainments in fact i think it's still like if you think about something like david lynch you know he has made movies where they're at least partially attempting to like leave the realm of reason altogether and just like these sort of like dreamy you know set pieces that are are only about one aesthetic experience piled after another you know with, with almost with like very little or no and that's still that's still um, that still is seems like a radical move in some way you know it's like so in a sense like it's not that foreign at all well and there's something like there's something kind of monstrous about it right yeah. i think that's what he's kind of going for is that right. is that, that sort of uh technique 
akin to what Aristotle calls spectacle in my translation. Spectacle was sort of uh, um, set pieces and things that can be done of physical nature to sort of uh, spice up the action of the uh, play. When I was thinking of spectacle, it was more like the um, <laughs> the space battle scenes at the beginning of uh, uh, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> very, a very long battle scene, computer-generated graphics. That's a spectacle. And it, it, it doesn't communicate as much uh, poetry as, uh, as a good tragedy does. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's pretty critical of spectacle, right? That bad poets lean yes. too much on spectacle. Because so it's... I don't know um, for the for the David Lynch, Adam. Would you say the filmmaker is expressing something poetic, but it just doesn't quite follow um, necessity of normal events? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think he's certainly he's not following any sort of law of necessity, except his own. I mean, it's. I guess that's what I was saying. That's what I was trying to say. It's like Aristotle probably would, you know, maybe would be critical of something like that because it's too far gone into the individual um, erotic <laughs> dream world of, of the poet, right? It's there's not enough to like connect the audience to the tragedy, like that kind of the compact shattered. Something. The audience might even need some sort of special preparation before viewing the the art the play the yeah. film well it's, it's also completely incidental right like the spectacle you can dress up any story right which so and if if somehow like this art i think i think the question of right. like 20 it's not about the plot right right and i, I think it's like no plot. yeah an accurate mimesis or like a, a proper mimesis is mimetic um, not because it looks good, but because it's somehow rendering something truthful or like something like in, an, in the whole. And every aspect of the spectacle could be considered to be cut, especially since he's tracing the, the origin of tragedy entirely to the verbal. So is, is that, Greg, going back to what you were saying earlier, is that kind of your problem with the, a certain sense of imitation? Because imitation may be understood as just like trying to render something realistic, whereas that's not really Aristotle's intention with mimesis. It's more just trying to get at something true, but true doesn't necessarily need to be rendered in a perfectly like literalistic, realistic sense. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, like a, a, a piece that strove at perfect imitation of reality would no longer have any poetic value. Well, and it's interesting too, because sometimes it feels like, not that we need to like keep harping on David Lynch, but in David Lynch films, there's something about it that is upsetting, I think, because it feels so real. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like you could, you can almost just like put yourself in those emotions in a way that's like, I don't know, it, like it, 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 it almost becomes, I think this is in line with what we've been saying, but it feels like it's just like become so personalized or so subjective or something like that, that it leaves, leaves the um, sort of territory or subject matter of, of 
some sort of objective truth that Aristotle might be more inclined to privilege. Yeah. Would, would you say that you are denied catharsis by that kind of approach? Like you are, you, you the feelings of pity and fear are aroused in you, but there's no, uh, there's no catharsis. There's no purging. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't thought about it in those terms, but that seems, that seems like it's at least getting at something, right? I mean, I often find that like, uh, those like a lynch movie leaves me just with a feeling of like like floating dread (laughs) (laughs) and that does not seem to be what aristotle thinks that uh good tragedies should are meant to leave us with so returning to your question adam about aristotle and morality i mean it seems like uh faithlessness to the truth in some way or failure to perform these certain operations they they have a sort of moral valence to them, don't they? Can I can I just tack onto that? How how is this different from saying something like to be moral is to be rationalistic in the sense that you don't get overwhelmed by your emotions? Like I'm thinking of like Plato's analogy of the of the horses and the charioteer, you know, like mm-hmm. letting lo- like in some way, like poetry ought to act like logos does there where it like directs, directs the appetitive and the, and the, um, uh, thumos, the, the passion is the passion part of the soul. Is that, does that make sense? Is like, and is that, is, is that kind of what we're saying when he is moralistic about poetry? Yeah. I think that's in the background. I mean, I think definitely the ethics very much in the background here. I mean, one another question I was—it's akin to what we were just talking about—is um, he really is very brief here, right? I mean, it's what degree does he expect the hearer to connect what he's saying here with the the ethics and the metaphysics? I think is an interesting question. I mean, it seems to me that he's the expectation is you're going to be filling in the gaps here with the with yeah. his, the rest of his philosophy, right? But yeah, I think, I mean, definitely, I think that he, he would just say that there is a, a moral balance there and, and that, yeah, the, the proper relationship between the tragic poet and the audience is one where the, the audience is like allowed to yeah, have these. The cleansing, well, uh, the cleansing of these feelings. Yeah. But, sex puts it. but the, re, you know, but yeah, the rational part of the soul is, is in control. Like I'm sure, <laughs> I'm certain Aristotle would think it was a failure if like uh, the tragic the performance of the tragedy was interrupted, like mid-performance but the audience was just like went mad and started to fight or something or like you know dismembered a, a player but yeah but and it's i mean uh, scholars have noticed this that in greek tragedies the violence takes place off stage and that's important mm-hmm. right yeah. oedipus isn't putting his eyes out on stage because that's the sort of thing that raises the passions um but i do think i think everything we've been saying is right but i also want to comment that so you know, so I think Aristotle would say something like, right, philosophy corresponds to noose, um, philosophizing co- corresponds to noose, and then the activity of cleansing fear and pity, that's not like a strictly intellectual activity. It's like a, it's like a release of a pressure valve. And mm-hmm. may, maybe for the end, maybe for the end that the, uh, the tripart soul stays in good order or something. But I think he would say tragedy and epic are different precisely because they somehow don't speak to the intellectual part, but service the the uh, thumos-driven part of our soul or something like that. 
Well, yeah, and maybe another way to, to add to that, I think Aristotle is really concerned with this because reality is at stake, that somehow if you consume bad art, you, you lose the ability to see the world, um, which is why I think he would come down really hard on the Lynch stuff, just because like anything monstrous would be to like orient the the whole like yeah it, it would just be to intrude upon the human like an, an intolerable amount of um the accident yeah. yeah lynch is precisely the sort of poet that socrates wants to kick out right yeah the other thing is that <laughs> i mean worth yeah definitely and what's worth considering like that there's there's no psychology right i was i was trying to find i think this is the quote i was thinking of but like on chapter chapter 10 um 1452 a in the middle uh some plots are simple others are complex just as the actions which they imitate are clearly one or the other i call simple an action which is one and continuous or de as defined above and in the course of which the change of fortune occurs without recognition or reversal a complex action is one wherein the change of fortune is accompanied either by recognition or reversal or both they must emerge from the plot structure itself so that they are connected with what has gone before as the inevitable or probable outcome. It makes all the difference whether one incident is caused by another or merely follows it. So I think one way of thinking of reading that, and he's kind of restating what he said before there, but like one way of thinking about this, this focus on the, the inevitability of the plot sequence is it like there's no murky depths of psychology, right? It's like in, an, in a perfect tragic plot for Aristotle, there's not gonna be any moments where people get together to discuss like, why would the character do this? <laughs> it's going to be left opaque, you know? It's like, you know precisely why everything follows every other thing. And that seems to be really important to him that you can, that the rational observer can follow along, you know, and understand, understand at this very surface level. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it's at, the, at this very surface level, like why the character's doing what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems like a foregone or like a it's just pr assumed also to kind of go along with that that this is the, a lot of these are just or of these are just about the the humans' um, relationship to the polis too, right? And then like something like Lynch, you just don't get that. Like it doesn't the, the state doesn't seem to matter at all. It's just about one's own psychology one's own internalized i mean i'm sure you could make, do some elaborate hoop jumping to um show that that's not the case but but i mean the point but to your point like it's very obvious in these that it that that the individual's relationship to the greater whole is at stake here one well, and both of these things are things that Auerbach comments on right he's sort of taking this as a starting point in trying to distinguish greek and hebraic modes of storytelling yeah mm. yeah he's almost he's he's uh you could easily set his comments on the abrahamic story against what aristotle says here yeah they're antithetical right yeah wait wait why why are they antithetical yeah the way i was reading Auerbach is that the in, in the greek presentation it's actually of utmost importance that the world be near at hand because one is that puts the the being that's perceiving the play in contact with the real and like the whole and the actual right like 
the universal of what may may really be there. And so um, withholding parts of the whole and then requiring later interpretation to understand it would be um, a violation of the central norm of this, which is that like at all times you are depicting the whole for the sake of the whole. Whereas in Hebraic literature and religion, right, the the whole is fundamentally excluded by the by the inability of the human being to understand the Godhead. And so saying things like, oh, I'm gonna depict the whole is absurd and you know sinful even. So one would argue that uh, you believe that Oedipus the King, for example, does what Auerbach says uh, the Greek epics do and gives us everything that we need, lays it bare. But what Aristotle is uh, scientifically uh, explaining in the poetics is just how um, Sophocles, Oedipus the King, tells the story in the right way, such that the laying bare of the facts is done in such an order that we experience the eleos and phobos, and we uh, are then, we experience the catharsis in the right order. Right, whereas like the Hebraic Oedipus, at the, at the very most important moment when he's going to gouge out his eye, God intervenes mysteriously and he <laughs> undergoes a revelation about his, his pathetic nature to the Godhead and that changes him permanently. And he becomes mm -hmm. some kind of like religious mystic thing towards the Godhead and always affirms it. Whereas so, like, uh, Oedipus has the Job story. <laughs> yeah, right. or it has to be, right? Like, like the Hebraic God couldn't violate their contract with as long as as long as we're assuming oedipus is a worthy person um in the yeah. same way right like like the hebraic god can torture whatever like the, the, he's capable of anything but, mm. but it cannot be monstrous mm. right like that like this there's somehow and so there needs to be a stepping yep. back from the monster like the monster still exists in the cosmos but it's not the act of God, and that that implies that something is behind it's us. <laughs> yeah, we we are the monster. We are. Well, it's. I mean, it's almost like maybe one way to think about it: the the Greek story as Aristotle and, and Auerbach are presenting it is a sort of somewhat discrete, well-made, symmetrical object. And there's something about that sense of completeness and that sense symmetry. I, I'm using that somewhat metaphorically, but. Uh, the symmetry and the wholeness and the discreteness, somehow that aids in the cathartic function. And then if we were to think about what are the Hebrew stories, the Hebrew stories are fragments floating, floating in a meta narrative, right? So almost like if you're like, imagine flying over a plane, flying in a plane over a field of clouds and you see mountain heads poking out of different places. You know there's something underneath there. You know there's a hole underneath there. You can't see it. And each little peak, one peak would be the Abraham story. One would be the Moses. This the, the hole sort of pokes out at random places. And you sort of trust that the fragments are meaningful because they're somehow in relation to the other fragments as opposed well, to the, the Greek, well, the, the Greek complete object. I propose. <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think in a way, the individual st stories, especially the Abraham story, they do have that that kind of feeling. But I also, I mean, the, the background knowledge of the covenant, right, is mm -hmm. is embedded in all those stories, and that kind of gives them more of a, a unity, right? Yeah, but I think I think I would say like the covenant story is one of those mountain peaks poking out through the mountains and you're you're thinking about the relation between the different mountain peaks, but there's just mm. so much unknown in between any, any mm. discrete story that kind of mm. necessarily feels like a fragment. But doesn't yeah. uh, or is Adam saying that the the covenant, the fact of the covenant sort of becomes the the earth between the mountain peaks it's one of those things that underlies the the story of the uh the isaac sacrifice the covenant is in the background as auerbach would say so that would be the earth under the clouds for your analogy uh we don't but there was the <laughs> go ahead but no i i agree that like the the making of the covenant would be a mountain peak mm-hmm but but the fact that the covenant is a a condition that applies from that moment forward also makes it the, the earth constitutive of those subsequent mountain peaks. <laughs> uh, yeah, perhaps. I mean, we don't we don't need to go on this too much longer because it's it's sort of straying. But I think the reason I think that's a good analogy <laughs> is because uh, like the the part of the earth that's covered by the clouds right that's the unknown and even the moment of of god making a covenant with abraham right he just kind of shows up and says hey abraham i'm gonna do something great with you and makes a covenant and then leaves yeah no that's true mm -hmm. the, and the, and the nature but, of so, god is always upset. yeah the the point the point is what's covered by the cloud is what you sort of is the meta narrative or the implied meta narrative or something that all these fragments are in but i'm gonna leave this behind <laughs> i wanted to Let's keep, to, uh, let's keep stretching this metaphor. What are, what are the trees growing on the mountains? What, what is, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about the Sherpas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I wanted to ask a question because uh, Adam brought up the ethics, Aristotle's ethics, and trying to relate uh, tragic poetry to the ethics. I was wondering, in every tragic poem we have a tragic experience particularly in the case of oedipus he does not die at the end of oedipus the king there's a second play about oedipus but i suppose with those two things are, are we as a greek audience are we looking at an event and then are we asking ourselves the question whether since oedipus uh still is alive after this event I mean, are we able to judge his life as being unhappy thoroughly from from this event? Is it possible for any person to be considered to have had a happy life if this sort of tragic event takes place? Or does tragedy does a tragic event negate the possibility of a happy life? That of course was the what, what, the main question of uh, the ethics is, is is what makes mm -hmm. For the good life so yeah. what it, so what does solon say in herodotus count no man happy until he's dead exactly well we can look at the text 
I wasn't reading. I wasn't, I think there's a, a slight distinction to be made between from being a happy person to becoming an unhappy person in a sort of definite way versus having good fortune and having a change to bad fortune. And I, I don't think that that precludes having a reversal to good fortune later on beyond the tragedy, though that's not the concern of the tragedy. Well, yeah, I just think, I mean, just based on we, we I have someone, maybe me, read the passage about the characters in poems representing like universals, right? And I, I just think that Aristotle is not thinking of characters as, as being happy or unhappy in that way. They're, they're vessels for um, some thing. What is, what is the actual words? The, I mean, they're vessels for for features of the universal, for features of universal features of nature or something. They're not, you know, they don't have those kind of features. They don't have psychology. You know? but, but he does say that the the tragedies, at least the ones he seems to concern himself with the most, like the epics, um, sort of focus on characters that are better than us. Like they they seem to be like have a certain virtue that we might be lacking in so it is interesting because like especially in the case of oedipus because he mentioned sophocles i think specifically there yeah um, i mean it would be <laughs> it'd be hard to say that well i guess we'd have to talk about the relationship no, that's a good question like what does good... he what does he mean by when he says that that they're better than us like do we want to say that oedipus yeah is better yeah than Right. Well, and especially because like it, it seems like virtue and happiness are so aligned there with mm -hmm. within the ethics. I, I you know, it, I, I think there's there's still a big question for me about how much they go hand in hand, even in the ethics. And obviously, like circumstances come into play and obviously Oedipus's circumstances were pretty, pretty mm -hmm. bad. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um Anyway, yeah, I, 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 all that to say is like, I think Alex's question is a good one. You think about nobility, right? If you think about this, this superiority as a matter of nobility, do, do we think about it as uh, an intrinsic virtue of character or just simply noble birth as we see mentioned time and again in the epics? The heroes are of noble birth. Right. So when he says they're better than us, yeah, is that, um, does he just mean that they're from the good families <laughs> mm -hmm. or that they possess some kind of dig, you know, higher register of dignity or nobility or full humanness or something ethical? It's gotta, it's gotta be all of them, right? So they're, they're yeah. more fortunate, right? They're better born and uh, they have virtue. Because if they don't have fortune, they have nothing to lose. If they're not better born, then they're one, not memorable and can't be recreated from the past, right? Like he makes it very clear that they can't be created whole cloth from nothing. These all have to be like vaguely historic events. And then three, um, if they're not virtuous, um, then, it's, then it's worthy of celebration that they fall. Mm -hmm. not tragedy Hi. so so they must be better born in every way right they're genoi right they're nobles they're rich mm -hmm. and they're good can can we read from chapter 13 which it touches directly on this question 
So I'll read the beginning. So it's, uh, yeah, I'll read the first paragraph of 13. By the way, the, what, what Sachs translates as missing the mark is the Greek word hamartia, which then becomes sin in the New Testament, which is kind of interesting. Um, so 13, starting at the beginning. What one ought to aim at and what one ought to be on guard against in organizing stories and where the work proper to tragedy will come from would be next in order to speak of after the things that have now been said. Now, since the putting together of the most beautiful sort of tragedy needs to be not simple but complex, and this needs to be imitative of things producing fear and pity, since this is the special property of this sort of imitation, it is clear first that decent men ought not, ought not to be shown changing from good to bad fortune, since this is neither frightening nor pitiable but repellent. And people of bad character ought not to be shown changing from bad to good fortune, since this is the most untragic thing of all, for it has none of the things that tragedy needs, since it neither arouses love for humanity nor is it pitiable and fright or frightening. Someone of extremely bad character ought not to fall from good to bad fortune either, for while this sort of organization of the story would have a love for humanity in it, it would not have either pity or fear, since one of these has to do with someone suffering misfortune while not deserving, deserving it, the other with his being like us, pity being for an undeserving, uh, the other with his being like us, pity being for a person undeserving of misfortune and fear for one like us so that the results will be neither pitiable nor frightening. And then he comes to the ideal. Therefore, what remains is the one between these. This is the sort of person who is not surpassing in virtue and justice, but does not change into misfortune through bad character and vice, but on account of some missing of the mark if he is among those who are in great repute and good fortune, such as Oedipus and Theistes and conspicuous men from such families. So one thing I read this, read this to be saying, if I'm understanding right, is that the main character in a tragedy can't be too sort of morally noble, for lack of a better word, um, because then we can't relate, but he should be from a high family which I think is because more pity is evoked by someone from a high place falling low. But uh, uh, yeah, what do you think? The, uh, so the, the important fact in the sense of the Oedipus story is that Oedipus is not uh, morally perfect because it is revealed to us along the way that he, in fleeing his adopted home well there are so many revelations in oedipus he he murders a man on the highway before he gets to where he uh marries his mother and the man on the highway that he kills happens to be his father which is revealed later but in uh it's been a while since i read oedipus is is killing the man in and of itself immoral or is it immoral because it happened to be his father because that makes a difference. And, and then marrying the queen is certainly not immoral in and of itself, unless the queen happens to be your mother. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's exactly that. He, 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 it's some condition of ignorance causes him to err badly because if it, if it was wrong to kill the man, it wouldn't be tragic that he dies. Right. And if well, that, it was wrong to marry the, the queen. Think then, about um, the man that Telemachus granted asylum. He had uh, murdered someone 
but Telemachus granted him asylum. It seems like we can infer that Oedipus was operating under the same sort of things. This, uh, this event occurred on the highway where Oedipus killed a man. And so the place where he came to to seek asylum happened to be the place where he was born and was granted asylum by his mother, which was not somehow uh, known to him at the time. Right. And the distinction is, right, so he did not fall into misfortune through bad character and vice, but on account of some missing the mark. So it's not a, is marrying marrying the queen is not an indication of Oedipus's bad character. It was a perfectly reasonable action, except for the ignorance and then the revelation, which made it a tragic moment. Yeah, right. So if someone does an actually good deed and is punished for that, that's bad, right? Um, and so it can't be that Oedipus did. He is that he was trying to do the good, and and. Uh, is punished for that not because he actually did the good well right he was trying to be a, a good king of whatever that land mm-hmm. is called thebes thebes but it's it's so strange though because it's like the, the, the all like oedipus is missing the mark seems just like completely it's not him that's missing the mark <laughs> well i mean I, well I mean, I think this gets at the cultural difference and like the understanding of morality between us and and the Greeks really well. But it's like he misses the mark simply to like no fault of his own. Like we would never say that Oedipus is like responsible for his bad actions. Just like it just happens and it just like seems to happen to him. But nonetheless, it seems like the Greek, the Greek would in some way hold that against him. Um, and I'm not, it's not clear to me what that means either, but, but, but if you hold it against him, you can't pity him, right? You, you have to say like this fate belongs to him, but you find that tragic. Right. So you're, you're like, what's, what's occurring to you is some recognition that the world doesn't adhere to a perfect moral order that Oedipus is not really at fault for what he's done. But if I, but if I don't recognize that, or some like some some failure to miss that, well, and we'll get into the catharsis stuff later. But um, there's there's some kind of belonging, like, and that's where the whole comes in, right? There's some kind of belonging onto him, that, like we, we don't even have a category for this like middle road, and it seems like in our society, right? You're either at fault or you're innocent. Right. And I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at though, is like if somehow Aristotle views Oedipus as like not an ideally moral person, like he's in some way missing the mark. Um, but for us, it feels like we would say that no, Oedipus is a completely moral person. He just suffers from bad circumstances that were outside of his control. And I think that gets at what you're saying, Greg, that for the Greek person, like um, suffering conditions that are outside of your control is part of like not belonging to this like higher order that the the ideal person in the way Aristotle would see it would belong to. Right, because virtue is not in your head. There's right. like intention is, is completely irrelevant, except to the, the to the attend that Oedipus's intention reveals um, his character. 
Right. So Oedipus is Oedipus has a character. It's revealed through his intentions and his actions, but the, the, somehow the means don't align with an end. That's what, missing the mark is such a fantastic translation of Hamartia, like that really gets at it, right? Like it's it's almost an intellectual failing, um, uh, and therefore a, a guilt. Well, and missing yeah. the mark. Right, missing the mark is aiming for the good and not hitting it. Right, yeah. that's, that's literally what it is. Is you you aim for the good and you fail to hit it because you lack the the ability, which describes Oedipus perfectly well. Maybe, can we can we think about the two? So we've talked a little bit about how the Oedipus play might evoke pity in the audience. Right, this person was subject to fate greater than himself, and then he got this sort of raw deal. Um, what? How would the Oedipus play evoke fear in the audience or or purify from fear if we want to go towards catharsis well the the whole arc is is him coming like there's a suicide he gouges out his eyes right the tension over the course of the play is we have to watch this horrible thing happen to him and it wouldn't be fear in a sense of spectacle like they're not going to see blood on the mask or anything but it is fear in the sense of like here is a man who should be afraid and the audience feels fear on his behalf. Is it also because like, well, that could happen to me like, or yeah. something, you know, like that could happen to me. Well, that's why it's kind of universal, right? Like the audience can't connect in the same way if it's truly particular. Yeah. Um, and what's the, just the fear that you are unwittingly. <laughs> Mooning uh, your mom. Moral order. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, uh, I mean, that you are. I guess I'm trying to remember the details of the Oedipus. But he does kill that. He essentially, like, he just like road rage kills his father, right? I mean, well, he's insulted because he's he's a, a basically a, a prince from, and he's on the road, yeah. and he's beaten out of the road by this entourage. So he kills them all. That's right. Yeah. The unwittingly part is really interesting because you can't take it and turn it into like a moral lesson. Like, because what would the moral lesson be? Hey, every right. time you go out there and you're doing something that you think is perfectly kosher, it may turn out that it's a horrible temper. Yeah. You're breaking. <laughs> yeah. And then your life's going to fall apart. Yeah. So just be in fear all the time. But remember, you'll never see it coming by definition. <laughs> right. what, could go, what could go wrong <laughs> yeah. maybe that's really the universal component of the fear right is that there's there's like an irreducible element of i guess not disharmony but but chaos or something or fate or like indifference in nature and you could be caught up in it too there's no way of living that's so good that it like exempts you from that possibility do you think a greek audience though would would have interpreted um oedipus story as being hyperbolic though like like not to not to say it's not true but like it's almost like oedipus is the exemplar of like the worst possible way fate can play out but mm. in that there's contained this like lesson that you know it, it's almost it's almost socratic in a sense like you have to know what you don't know um and like, and I, and I think your point still stands, Elijah. That like, it doesn't. That doesn't really get you that far. But contained within that, like the hyperbole of the play, as I am inclined to read it, at least, is to say that yeah, stuff can go really bad. But like Oedipus, Oedipus is like the worst, po the worst possible scenario. That's not 
that's not going to happen to me, you know, or does that not make sense? I don't know. I, I think that makes sense, Paul. And it, I mean, the sort of question we're circling around is the, the plays not only evoke fear and pity, but they somehow cleanse you of them and uh, what that does and how that works. I mean, I think I hear you proposing one sort of hypothesis around that, but I'm, yeah. I'm still puzzled. <laughs> Well, I think that the, I mean, the extremity of the events are supposed to correspond to the, to the grandiosity of the, mm-hmm. the types. I mean, any of the Greek plays that we can think of, any of the Greek tragedies we can think of, they involve extremely hyperbolic or heightened reversals and series of events. I mean, uh, Agamemnon, Iphigenia, Iphigenia. Um, but I guess the reason all these things. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, but I guess one of my worries though is like if it is hyperbolic that doesn't downplay the fear of it you know it would almost like it seems like it would seem to just sort of belittle how fearful you would be of it because like, you just kind of walk away from it like oh yeah that's not going to happen to me whatever well it's it's more like showing you the door than showing you where people overshoot right like like this this is the way of unadulterated suffering and it's knowable oedipus finding out that something went wrong is again like completely different than than abraham going up the mountain with his son right like in some ways i think those are equally brutal acts he has to murder his son knowingly while oedipus realizes he's killed his mother and married his father but for for oedipus the the hyperbole of it is opened up to the audience, right? He comes in and his suffering is on display and presented. Um, and so it's more like, it's a hyperbole that that lets you in versus one that boxes you out. Like Abraham earns his place with God in a way that you hyperbolically never could. Whereas you can, it's that, that close far thing, so useful in this, can, 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 can know Oedipus is lost in, in a way that, 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 yeah, you can't at all. It would be absurd to say of Abraham. Although, so you're, go ahead, Adam. Well, now that you're saying that, I'm actually, I'm thinking uh, there is a way in which you could, you can think of Abraham, the, especially the Isaac, the binding of Isaac in, in Aristotelian terms here, right? Like, because you can imagine two fundamental parts of the ethical world coming into like, unresolvable conflict right and having to make some kind of torturous choice between loyalty to one beloved person or loyalty to another beloved person and there being no way to to reconcile the those competing demands right actually i'm i'm remembering now that kierkegaard doesn't he associate abraham with agamemnon as two two examples of the teleological suspension of the ethical but it can't but what i'm saying is like the the this, this narrative itself is inherently un-Aristotelian because it's not committed to betraying closeness. Like as, as for, I think this is where I'm really sticky about Mimesis. I think that Abraham's story is, is, is in some ways non-memetical. Like it, it's not really interested in putting up what the play is about. And, and I think that to Aristotle would just be shoddy storytelling. Whereas I think the Abrahamic tradition, that's some kind of like fundamental truth. Yeah, no, I don't think Aristotle would think that Abraham's story was a good example of tragedy. I was just yeah, yeah. thinking that you 
there i'm just thinking there, there is a way in which that story is also an example of universal types right oh yeah well what what kierkegaard says about agamemnon as i'm remembering i can't remember his exact terminology but he he makes a distinction between agamemnon and abraham and the distinction is precisely that Ag, uh, Agamemnon's suffering is comprehensible to the people around him, right. and Abraham's suffering is right. idiosyncratic and, by definition, cannot be shared. And then, what I and then to connect that to what I understood you to be saying is that so in the Oedipus story, the audience comes and watches the show, and Oedipus puts his suffering on display, and in some ways suffers for us right, through his speech, and that becomes purifying in some way. When somebody picks up the, the Abraham story, they read it, and the suffering is not on display, and something, but something about that story requires them to do the suffering themselves, right, because it's not displayed, and, and therefore, I mean, this, this is too schematic and too clean, but I'm putting it forward as a hypothesis to be challenged. Um, the Hebrew story, by definition, puts you in a state of turbulence because the suffering is not sufficiently displayed and the action is not sufficiently complete. So you as the reader are drawn in and required to do the suffering. Whereas in Aristotle's idea, tragedy displays the suffering and makes you feel fear and pity, but it acts as a catharsis because the characters on stage are displaying that for you in some way that you can identify with and sort of follow along with. It's the contradiction thing, right? Like, I think that's why Kierkegaard is, is so keyed into that story is because it like presents this ethical contradiction that necessitates um, sort of some, some sort of suspension of the ethical and just some, you know, a leap into faith or whatever. But I, that, I don't think that that kind of thing could ever happen for Aristotle. Everything's mm -hmm. got to have some sort of, for lack of a better term, logical revolution. Logical is really misleading there, but, mm -hmm. it, but it, it, could, it can, a resolution that would satisfy um, human comprehension. Whereas, you know, Kierkegaard's comfortable, well, <laughs> it's tricky with Kierkegaard, but I think at some level Kierkegaard is comfortable with just leaving something up to, to God or something mm -hmm. like that. Well, yeah, and to say what I was saying in modes of storytelling, if, if the Abrahamic story included Abraham going aside and having a soliloquy, woe is I, I must sacrifice my son, I can't believe, I must do this to please my God, so on and so forth, that, that would be an act of Aristotelian catharsis for the reader slash audience. But the, the Hebraic story, it seems like purposely doesn't give us that sort of outlet for the, for yeah. the angst of the story. Does that follow? I think so. I, I wonder though, um, I see why you said it that way, but like, I wonder if it would be satisfactory for Aristotle. Cause I, I think even just the set of circumstances themselves would be upsetting to Aristotle. I'm not, you know, yeah. I, I don't know if it would be enough for, for Abraham to just like step aside and, and give like a Hamlet, like, you know, speech. I think we need more than that. Does it harken back to um, the distinction that Auerbach makes between the uh, Greek epic and the Hebrew epic that what is uh, given to us in this Abraham narrative, it uh, is meant to be taken as a piece of universal history. We were discussing 
Aristotle's distinction between poetry and history. So insofar as the the Hebrew story is meant to be a part of universal history, um, it it sort of falls out of Aristotle's criteria for poetry. Hmm. I, I guess my first my question would be is what we meant or what um, Auerbach talked about as universal history is that what Aristotle means by history here? I don't know. Oh no, it can't be right. I mean, doesn't Auerbach's thinking about universal history require an origin and a, an end? Origin uh, end. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, what I was... creation of the universe and the end of the universe. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, and that's what I was calling a meta narrative earlier. But what Auerbach does says is that the Hebrew writer writes differently because he thinks he's really writing what happened. He's really writing the true thing that happened, which I think that's history, right? And so it's not, it's not subject to probability, possibility, the thing that Aristotle points out in for poetry, right? Mm -hmm. It can't, it, uh, it doesn't admit of being otherwise. It is meant to be the truth. Well, in that way, poetry, yeah, history is just almost not philosophically significant. Mm -hmm. Like it, it can't do anything um, for you. It's just like this mere recording of the fact sheet that requires interpretation in order to make it say anything philosophically significant. Like you'd have to pause and deliver moral lessons adjacent to the history that like any set of particulars are just borderline meaningless um because they have no like 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 for, i think for aristotle the particulars are always getting away from you or they're always like falling away the, the minute they have any kind of inheritance they become especially like in a, in a human or a living being they're just they're dropped off very quickly um and so if is and 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 and, and so a, a fact sheet of those particulars can instantiate them in some way, but even that you're you're just missing the point, um, right? You're you're writing down the, the meaningless parts of life rather than meaningful. Yeah, I I see I see that, Greg, but it seems weird to because it's like when you write it down, it, it doesn't it doesn't fall away. Right, like when history is recorded, I, I you're you're calling this like the fact sheet, and I get that that still requires interpretation and all that, but it still seems to guide interpretation in a way that other kinds of particulars don't. Like you know, I, I don't know a, a a setting sun or something like that. Um, yeah, I don't well, know I where thought, to go go with that. I feel I thought the idea was that uh, history to be made meaningful has to have philosophy applied to it. Right? Because you have to organize all the facts somehow, and yeah, I I, I see that. But I'm just, I'm just, all I'm saying though is like when someone records, when or someone records the history, a I would say there's already an interpretive act going in yeah. there. So someone's already done sort of philosophy, but now your interpreted act as a reader of that history is. Um, limited in scope i mean there's only so many ways you can read thucydides presumably i mean you certainly can't read it like you would read herodotus for instance um that's all i'm saying and i i guess one thing i was wondering is like it feels like what the the um the jewish tradition does is it just kind of collapses that distinction between history and poetry 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and I wonder if that's why he's able to call it a universal history, you know, because that's precisely yeah. like for Aristotle, the universal is precisely what's left out of history for, for Aristotle. Well, the history does exactly what Greg was saying, right? It's like, uh, it's history plus moral lessons, <laughs> moral lessons run right. alongside the history. Well, and it's even, I, I think that's right, but it's even for the Hebrews, it's even more than that. It's that, okay, we have this world of particulars. In this world of particulars, from time to time, the universal breaks through and shows itself. And we've recorded all these stories. <laughs> so in the Hebrew story, the universal element, or we could call the philosophical element, is sort of baked in because those are precisely the stories that the Hebrew writers are interested in retelling. Yeah. Right. So for them, his for Hebrew history is not merely a collection of particulars. It is the universal colliding with the particular at what I call mountaintops. Well, and it's because they have the concept of the Jewish people, right? Like that God has anointed this set of stories, this language, th- this people to be the bearers of the history going forward. Where like weirdly enough, the, the, the Greeks don't have that kind of centralizing thesis of history. Like, like, the, like the creation of the universe is meaningless. The, its annihilation is, is equally meaningless. Like all there is is like this like steady state flow even like any particular city will be wiped from the earth. Um, and so like that, that identification or like eternality of particulars, they just can't hold on to. Yeah. And it's not only that it's, it's the universal God, right? So the Job story is completely out of the Jewish people and completely outside the covenant. And nonetheless, in the land of Ur, <laughs> the, the Hebrew God still shows up and uh, makes his presence known as it were. Yeah, and I think I'm trying to see the fate thing more clearly. Where where fate is, fate is not a god. It's the net. It's the necessary falling away of things, right? Like what does it, what does it mean to say that there are universals though in that in context? Greek? Yeah. So um, a city, right? Like like there there will always be cities. Like they're always already there. Yeah, they're not universally instantiated. Like cities aren't everywhere, but but you can always come upon them. Like like they're they're the elements that endure the the falling away of fate, mm. the rise and fall of particulars. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, duration. Well, no, I I wasn't thinking of things like duration though. I was thinking of like. Um, no, I, I was just saying that for a Greek person, the universal is really tied to the concept of duration. It's what endures. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I was thinking of the uh, line from the the metaphysics, right, where you 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 begin with what is near to you, but is actually known poorly, and and yeah. move towards what is far from you, but is actually known the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And he seems to say that tragedy is a. A mechanism the best tragedy is a mechanism for enabling that right that movement. Th- that's not, that's really great with the hyperbole thing right oedipus's actions are the most distant actions but the most close in order able to feel them like in some sense you should be able to feel oedipus's actions more than your own yeah um, and we still can like we still can right like i yeah. think of a depiction of just like an average uh, Athenians day would not well maybe it would I don't know but perhaps it wouldn't move us the same way Oedipus does well you call that uh intelligibility or knowability in insofar as the uh the pain of Oedipus situation uh pervades even the the modern reader's soul 
it is it is an intelligible truth what communicated is, through poetry yeah i think that's right and it's not a coincidence that aquinas grounds himself in aristotle and then starts talking about analogy in the way he does right i think this move tragedy evoking the universal or speaking to the universal it kind of seems somewhat like uh, aquinas's understanding of analogy can you add a little more to that elijah i'm not sure i'm not that will run up on Aquinas. Uh-huh. Well, so like what Aquinas would say is that, so he'd say, well, we can't know God directly, but we can know him via analogy. So the lion is, the lion is majestic, and we know that the majesty of God, so the universal majesty, is not quite the same, um, but we can learn something about the quality of the majestic through looking at the majesty of the lion. Yeah. And what I, I mean, what I think Aristotle's implying here is yeah, through looking at the story of Oedipus, right, we can learn something about the universal condition of man, some sort of universal truth. I'm, I, that's my thought. I'm actually not at all sure that it's right. No, but no, that I, sort of move. I think that's good. I think the one difference between Aquinas and Aristotle in, in the way you're setting it up is that Aristotle would believe like the, the ultimate mar marvel is accessible, whereas Aquinas pull off on that. Yeah, I think that's right. There just doesn't seem to be, and this kind of gets to Auerbach's point, I think, is there just there just doesn't seem to be an inaccessible in in Aristotle. The world is fun, well, I mean, yeah, I guess he says that flat out. The world is fundamentally knowable. Yeah, well, I think that's why mimesis can't be translated. Like, I just think that, like, for us, imitation always has the sense of dissonance. Um, right, where, where, where when you're aping something, the, the original is lost. Whereas for Aristotle, this mimesis, like, it's not just recapturing the original, it's reca recapturing what's most authentic about history. Like the, the very things that history wishes it most could identify, poetry reaches through and brings it forth. Like, like, like I really, I'm really into this whole like mimesis as a drawing forth of something like that, that uh -huh. out into clear sight and, it, and what it is particularly drawing forth of is action because for Aristotle action is a huge issue because it's always fading away and it's not enduring and so like this mm. ability to draw forth into action has like tremendous philosophic disputes and I think that's what rescues it from like the platonic cutting off that is threatened about and I, and that, I think that's really good too because I think it finally helps me like put my finger on why he does that funny thing at the beginning where he compared it compares the Socratic dialogues to Mayans right he uses it like very casually in the same sentence they're both mimesis and he says both when a Mayan does something and when you read the Socratic dialogues this like the the action of the person is there yeah yeah when I was actually going to read um speaking of action because Alex was earlier mr eric earlier was talking about the does a tragic reversal foreclose yeah. the possibility of a happy life right and um greg bringing up the importance of action reminded me of this because this is one of the this is 1450a about 10 or line 10 or 12 this is one of the places where you i thought you really saw the um the ethics in the background here and aristotle says uh, the most important of these uh, he's talking about plot and character the most important of these is the arrangement of incidents for tragedy is an imitation not of men but of action and life of happiness and misfortune these are to be found in action and the goal of life is a certain kind of activity 
not a quality. Men are what they are because of their characters, but it is, it is in action that they find happiness or the reverse. The purpose of action on the stage is not to imitate character, but character is a byproduct of the action. So that's really important, I think, right? The purpose mm. of it is not to imitate character, but character is a byproduct of the action. It follows that the incidents and the plot are the end which tragedy has in view. And the end is in all things the most important. Without action, there could be no tragedy, whereas a tragedy without characterization is possible. So you he can you can imagine a tragedy which is just like giant shapes with no characterization at all enacting a tragic plot successfully, right? Because what really matters is um, the, the downfall. Yeah, what matters is. Prometheus Bound, I think, is like the closest to a characterless tragedy that we have. Like, like Prometheus is 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 un, is inaccessible as having any other qualities other than having seen something and being punished for it. Mm -hmm. um, like, like it's it's still there. He's still like his 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 perk like perks and qualities come up, but how like primordial that that pl playing out is i think is really to that idea mm. Mm. but it does go back to this the thing we were discussing earlier about the intentions being beside the point right it's like the characters are a byproduct of the necessary actions mm -hmm. it's like what they want to happen but it kind of is like a, a paradox in a way because isn't part of the tragedy of oedipus that we know that he is wanting to do the right thing if we didn't know that about him would the tragedy become less tragic? Yeah, I think so, right? Because I think that's why I'm saying tragedies are so good. They're, they've, they've beaten epics because they're now, by having people enact them, they're gaining all of these like new qualities that, that, that epics might not have had to the same extent. Mm. Um, I guess epics definitely had character, but... Um, Right, because like the barest kind of mimesis would be like, and then he killed himself, right? Um, and there's no, there's no sign, there's no real, like you, you, you can have this some kind of feeling or response to it, but there's no real like arc, moral, moral reconciliation to that or something. The the function of Oedipus not being a scoundrel, I'm trying to like map it out in my head. Um, basically, if somebody is a low character or a vicious character, and then, and let's say they have good fortune in their vicious character, and then they tumble to a, a low place. There's something about that's the, that something about that that's not satisfying, uh, satisfying the needs of the of the tragedy, the cathartic requirements. So I think you're right, Adam, that in some way we need we need to have a sense of a sense that that Oedipus is a decent, I, I don't even know what terms to put it in other than moral terms, that Oedipus is a decent man. And, and, and that's what makes us feel the pity. I don't know. Okay, I, I've got something. And it sort of relates to uh, the distinction between or or it blurs the distinction between history and poetry, right? Because Aristotle mentions Herodotus, Herodotus gives us a narrative of the life of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And Cyrus was meant to be an exposed child because his father, the king, received a premonition or some sort of sign 
that he would be surpassed in glory by his son and his uh his uh envy led him to send the child away to be exposed on a mountainside i believe that same device is employed in oedipus that oedipus father who he ends up killing on the road is given a sign that he will be killed by his son so when he has a son he sends the son away Mm -hmm. the son receives a sign that he will meet some sort of misfortune due to his parents which causes him to leave his adopted home because he believes his adopted parents are his real parents and therein lies the uh the reversal so you have a a historical account that is then paralleled in great tragic poetry Really, the villain of Oedipus is the uh, ambiguity of oracular signs. <laughs> they could just be more specific. And, and, the, and the villain of early Greek history, too, right? Yes. Uh, I think you're right, Alex, that there's a parallel. And then, I mean, we're up against this question again where it seems like Aristotle would say yes, but the, but the Cyrus story is particular and the Oedipus story is universal. How exactly is what we've been trying to work out, I think. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I just wanted to add that that's kind of, and maybe this was your point, Alex, or part of it, but the um, that's the blame, that's part of the blamelessness of Oedipus, right? Is like, it's not really his <laughs> struggle with fate or his, you know, defile or uh, defiance of fate that sets off the action. It's his father's. And so he just ends up becoming like a victim to that. Yes, insofar as, right, a a cultural practice of divination leads the (laughs) father to make a judgment regarding his newborn son. Yeah. And the mystery of fate allows the, the oracular warning to play out just as it was meant to be, despite the fact that the, uh, the father tried to alter fate and that's certainly part of the uh that's part of the universality and part of the fear too right it's like there is a there is a deep truth there which is that you are you don't choose to be born and like as soon as you're born there are all these pre-existing problems that you inherit you know and there are it's entirely possible and probably and probably inevitable that you won't be able to just escape those or overcome them they're going to affect you and your life in some way and somehow sophocles communicates that in a way that herodotus doesn't quite he somehow explores that or makes it visible in a different way well he makes it tragic because cyrus isn't tragic right cyrus ends up ends up a you know being great and there i think there's something about the way in which sophocles makes you feel for oedipus that kind of raises that lesson if we can call it that that truth to a higher level than herodotus is capable of doing it i think part of it's just that it's been it's been constructed by one rational mind with the purpose of communicating to other rational minds right i think i was thinking about aristotle often uses in his other writings the metaphor of a sculpture i think that's an apt metaphor here as well Aristotle seems to take seriously the idea that 
the sculpture is like somehow a collaboration between the block of marble and the sculptor, right? I think he's thinking something like that with the tragedy as well. The story of Oedipus is like a collaboration between the raw material of, of human life and history and the poet, right? And yeah, and the tragedy has features like the chorus and like the speeches and like the spectacle that sort of focus you on that mystery in a way that Herodotus doesn't, right? The fact sheet doesn't, right. isn't oriented around that mystery in all of its features, with all of its features. Right. So you can read Herodotus, you can read Herodotus and, and not have that cathartic feeling and then hear the same story represented in a different way according to the, the conventions of tragedy and the effect is totally different. Right, and that's where they're, they're like, Hebraic stuff comes back in because it's like, unless you have a, an overarching God with a historical plan, you can't say history is significant. You just won't be able to tie it together. And I think that's ultimately the biggest mark against the Trojan War is that it's not actually a significant event because it, it, it doesn't have any overweening purpose. It, it, it like is momentous glory or whatever but but again like that's tied character to character it's an not, indivi individual glory yeah right which all the characters yeah, in homer it, acknowledge go ahead paul no sorry uh they would if they give if that was told from the hebraic tradition it would be like this is this is israel's overcoming of some enemy because they were um you know chosen by god to you know accomplish x y and z you know what not but the, the greeks just don't have that <laughs> right it would it'd be located within the messianic promise all that stuff right the covenant and they would deserve it they would deserve their <laughs> slaughter <laughs> um do you think darth vader is a tragic figure <laughs> no it's because he's not born into a noble family <laughs> is it because he's not noble uh not born into a noble family no i was just trying to think are, are there he's like the the epitome of spectacle <laughs> it uh no character well no presence right he, he doesn't represent anything significant except for um like i mean the, the question you could ask is like luke a tragic figure in the fifth movie that's about as far as you can push it um, yeah that's that's really good but, but, well, uh, no, but i mean in the end skywalker triumphs right so that's why i was trying to think he couldn't be a tragic figure ultimately. yeah but, but i think in the fifth movie it, you could say that movie it's standalone it's like a million times better than all the other ones combined um <laughs> yeah yeah he could represent a pseudo tragedy or like a yeah, you know yeah. modern attempted at tragedy I was just trying to think of ways that uh, we could map Aristotle's thinking about tragedy onto like contemporary entertainments that have the public, uh, have the eye of the public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a better one would be like Citizen Kane. That, that, well, that, might, yeah, that might be able to be made tragic. I have to yeah, say in terms of the origin of Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker um, in, the, in the 1999 phantom menace um it's really his the origin story is crafted as a messianic narrative so it really is not it doesn't seem compatible with the greek tragic 
tradition. <laughs> yeah. But I think, as Greg pointed out in uh, Empire Strikes Back, that kind of maps onto the Greek tragedy better, much better. I think the problem with Citizen Kane is he wants Rosebud, so he's ultimately a pathetic figure, not a tragic figure. He's not progressed emotionally past childhood. So his life Too is much worthless. psychology in Citizen Kane to be yeah, a proper tragedy. Totally worthless. He's utterly I mean, I think that's that's probably gonna be the problem with every single modern movie. Yeah. Been ruined by Freud, destroyed by Freud. Yeah. <laughs> no, about- it was Descartes' fault. <laughs> fuck, fuck that. What, De- what, Freud just like just makes uh, Descartes more complicated, which is more interesting. What about uh, there will be blood? Ooh, P.T. Anderson's actually a good one because P.T. Anderson really, I think, does attempt to get. He's not. He doesn't try to simply reduce everything to psychology, at least in his later movies. The early mm-hmm. ones that might not be true. Can, can I bring up one more random thing before we close? Ridiculous, is a tragic yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Um, so I was really struck. I was thinking about well, so the biggest way that Aristotle differs from us in thinking about genre is he sort of he tells this tale of like by learning and trial and error, whatever we arrived at proper tragedy, right? And it's like this very static, static idea of what tragedy is, and and basically like he kind of tells a story like, well, this is what tragedy has to be. Whereas our idea of genre now is much more Darwinian, right? It just evolves and will continually evolving. And the novel, you know, you can't talk about the novel being like a proper novel. It's just going to continue evolving forever, you know, as long as people write them. And I was just very much struck by how he almost seems to take genre as something like a platonic form. Like we finally achieved the, the tragedy when we figured out these, all of these characteristics and that's by which we can measure good and bad tragedy, which is also, I think, how he thinks about animal species um, mm-hmm. as, as a sort of fixed form. And that is just not something that we really have in our, in our uh, that's just not the way we think about genre today at all. Really. The, the one thing I would add to that, though, I think that is really interesting. The one thing I would add to that, though, is I think there is some sense that like tragedy, I think, is cl- culturally dead. Like I just, I just don't see today modern tragedies being interesting or good or at all riveting. And there's definitely no ability. If this is what he means by tragedy, there's not, there's literally no instances of this in modern society. And so I think that like societies might generate genres that go extinct. What about what about the trial, Franz Kafka? The trial. That's a tragedy. Uh, I think you have to have a different relationship to uh, aristocracy than we do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why comedy is a much more democratic art form. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and the and the trial is is completely anti-Aristotelian because it 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 blames the political order for the crisis, right? Like, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, he, he's not noble either, right? Oh uh, no, I don't know about that. I would almost say he's more significant. Like, he just he's so. He's so dogged in his approach to be, in his, his desire to be innocent. There's something that he, at least compared to the other people in the story, he's the only person with any kind of moral backbone. Well, to push back a little bit, Greg. Um, well, I think I think he's not aristocratic, and I don't know whether he's noble that's or not. But that's that's what I meant by noble. Yeah. He doesn't come from noble birth. But, but the other thing I was going to say is he's getting led away to execution and he says, ah, if only I had studied the law harder, this wouldn't be happening. That, <laughs> that's the same Martia, right? 
<laughs> I, I don't the know. Mark. Who knows what Kafka's talking about? The the comedic adaptation of Kafka's trial. Joseph K misses the mark. <laughs>